Hi everyone, welcome to the Morality is Hard podcast. This is Michael Deliacovo. Today I'll be speaking with Oscar Orta about wild animal suffering. Oscar is a Spanish animal activist and moral philosopher and is currently a professor in the Department of Philosophy and Anthropology at the University of Santiago de Compostela and is one of the co-founders of Animal Ethics, a non-profit organization formed to promote discussion and debate around issues in animal ethics, as well as to provide a resource for animal advocates. In our chat, we started off basic by defining what we mean by wild animal suffering and defining the problem. We talked about the question of what should we do, if anything, about the suffering of animals in the wild. We covered some common objections to concern for wild animal suffering. We talked about some specific interventions to help wild animals, including some of which are already in use, and some strategies for advocacy in wild animal suffering. I hope you find our chat interesting whether you are hearing about wild animal suffering for the first time or if you have been following the field. Today's episode is somewhat longer than the usual length, about two hours. I think this was necessary for this topic to ensure that we had enough time to cover all of the important questions. I don't have any extra thoughts this week, so we'll get straight into the interview, but I do just want to ask you to consider leaving a review for the podcast on whatever platform you're listening and to share it with your friends if you think they'll find it useful. It makes a big difference for how many people I'm able to reach with the podcast. So without any further ado, here's Oscar Orta. So I'm joined today by Oscar Orta. Thank you so much for offering your time and joining me today. Thanks for having me. So I'd, I'd like to start with asking people what their ethical framework is that they use to make decisions when it comes to different ethical issues. And the reason for this is often I see when people disagree with someone on some ethical issue, they think they're disagreeing about something more like facts when really they just have different underlying ethical frameworks. And so they're, of course, going to come to different conclusions. So just to start, my ethical framework is I'm a total hedonic utilitarian. So I think suffering is bad. Pleasure is good. And some, some amount of one can outweigh some amount of the other. So if I could start by asking you your ethical framework that you use, Oscar. So first of all, I am, I am also an, an experientialist and the, of the hedonist sort also. So I believe that the only positive or negative things that there are, are positive or negative experiences. I believe that uh, positive experiences are positive and negative experiences are negative though I wouldn't have a totally symmetric view between how good or bad positive and negative experiences are. Until recently, I, I didn't think that. But uh, the main argument that convinced me to think this is that if I can imagine the worst possible suffering and the mildest possible suffering, and then I imagine the mildest possible positive well-being, uh, pleasure, and the most extreme pleasure, it seems to me that going from the most extreme suffering to the mildest suffering would be better than uh, going from the mildest pleasure to the most extreme pleasure. In addition to this, I am also a consequentialist, and I also think that the well-being of different individuals can be compared. So it's not that, you know, your welfare can't be in any way compared to, to mine. I am against what utilitarianism claims when it comes to distribution. So I would consider myself to be an egalitarian. This is because if I have to compare a scenario where half of the population have a well-being, a, a net well-being of, say, 200, 
and the other half of the population have a, a, a net well-being of zero. And if I compare that situation with, a, with another situation where everyone has a well-being of uh, 90, I think that the second case is better than the, than the previous case. And if you are a utilitarian, you would disagree with this because you would say, well, okay, 200 and zero, uh, yeah, that's like 100 uh, average. So if the population doesn't vary, the result is the same for average or for total views. And, and that's more than 90. So we would prefer that situation. And I think that's, that's pretty bad. I think that our ethical views should give an advantage to the ones who are um, worse off, regardless of uh, the issue with asymmetric or symmetric views when it comes to positive or negative uh, value. Having said this, while I'm here presenting my views uh, on these topics, I do not often do so because I prefer to set them aside when I am examining questions like the one we're going to be tackling here, because I think that it's better to present a case that can be, convinced, can be convincing for people who have very different uh, normative views. Yeah, it's, it seems like the, the case for a lot of issues, wild animal suffering being one of them, can be accepted by, I guess, a very wide range of different ethical views. You don't have to be, say, a utilitarian necessarily to, to accept that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, well, cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, so, I'd, I'd love to get into get stuck into wild animal suffering. Um, so, if I could just ask you to introduce uh, what is the concept of wild animal suffering, um, what kinds of things are we talking about, and just take it from there. Yeah. So, um, there is a view that many people have that is also reinforced by environmentalist thinking and also by wishful thinking, according to which uh, animals in the wild, at least as long as we uh, leave them alone and, and don't do bad things to them, are living relatively good lives. And um, this, this view is also um, reinforced by the fact that we know how much animals are harmed by humans and we know the facts of uh, animal exploitation, the terrible suffering that many animals have to endure, um, on, you know, in, in, in very, very high numbers. So when we consider this, we think, okay, there should be a situation when, when this doesn't happen. And then it's, it's relatively easy to think of animals in the wild uh, to be in that situation. But unfortunately, animals face many challenges out there in different ecosystems. They face uh, numerous sources of, of harm that uh, would harm us if we were in their same situation. For instance, they may include uh, things like hunger, thirst, hostile uh, weather conditions, also things like disease or parasitism, accidents, injuries also conflicts between them. And then there are other sources of harm that we often don't consider because they don't affect us, but can affect very significantly many animals, especially those that have um, small size, such as, for instance, changes in, say, the salinity of their environment or the light that there is in their environment or things like, for instance, uh, the humidity that is around them. And this not only harms the animals in terms of ending their lives, but also causes them to endure very significant forms of suffering. This is something that, um, regardless of your ethical view, should be a concern for, for most people. 
I mean, um, it doesn't necessarily requires you requires that you have a certain view. So, for instance, suppose that you hold a care ethics uh, a view. Well, if you think that what you should do is have an attentive um, moral character, one that is, um, you know, willing to take into account when others need you, then this is something that you should take very seriously. Also, if you have uh, a virtue ethics view, yeah, you should, among other virtues, probably include also that of compassion towards others who are in need of help. The virtue of beneficence also seems important to uh, uh, someone with this view. And if you believe in, in some form of deontological ethics, well, when it comes to human beings, it's true that there are some views that don't accept that we should uh, help others. We should just respect them and not harm them. But most right views uh, don't accept this. They also include things like positive duties towards others. They include things like the right to be helped. So um, people holding these views, they should also be supporting helping wild animals. And then if you are, for instance, a utilitarian, to be sure, you should worry about all suffering. So you should um, be aware of this. And not only suffering, but for instance, if the harms that animals suffer in the wild are also depriving them of their positive experiences, that should be a concern for, for you, even if suffering is, is quite uh, uh, widespread. And then if you hold other views, like for instance, the one I mentioned uh, before that I hold, if you are egalitarian, or if you are, say, a prioritarian or a sufficientarian, that is, if you hold any view that worries especially about the ones who are worse off, then you would have extra reasons in addition to the ones that, uh, for instance, utilitarians or maybe some people holding the ontological views would have. Because the fact that some animals live very, very bad lives, that would give you reasons to consider that uh, that situation is really, really bad and that uh, you would have uh, especially strong reasons to help those animals. Mm. Yeah, I think the main the main point, um, the, the main takeaway here is uh, something that's very unintuitive, I think, for people when they first think about this topic. It's, it's that there are a lot of different sources of harm for wild animals because often when we look at, when we think about wild animals, we're often thinking about uh, large mammals and uh, it, it seems like they tend to have better lives than say a lot of smaller animals uh invertebrate animals like insects um who have probably a lot worse lives um, and so if we actually think about uh a lot of um the smaller animals we can uh, think about the different sources of harm being being greater uh and also the fact that young um sorry smaller animals tend to uh give birth to more young and in a stable population you're only going to have uh, on average, two offspring surviving, and so a lot of them you, um, will probably die quite painful deaths. Um, do, do you want to talk about any of that a little bit? So one, maybe one objection that people may have when we are speaking about this is, well, we, we can recognize that the sources of harm that I mentioned before are harmful for animals, but can, how can you guess actually what are the experiences that animals are, are having, right? So for this, it's true that we have some methods of assessment of the well-being, positive and negative experiences that animals may have. But, you know, uh, they are very limited and they would only work maybe with certain animals that we know better. It's harder to assess the positive or negative well-being of a very young animal. 
But then there is this other indirect way of assessing the aggregate amount of well-being and, and suffering that there is in the wild. And this has to do with, with what you just mentioned. So we can consider death as a proxy for suffering and then examine how death is prevalent. So this would be a method that would allow us to make rough estimations that even if not accurate, they can be useful when it comes to uh, considering the big picture. Why is this? Well, because uh, typically the same things that cause the death of the animals also cause them to, to suffer. It's true that an animal can have a very uh, quick death and feel very little in the process. But when we consider the most widespread causes of suffering, they typically also cause many animals to die. Consider any of the other ones that I mentioned before, like lack of food or uh, harmful weather conditions, uh, disease, etc. So it seems then that a good method to make these assessments is to look at age-specific mortality, which is how many animals in a particular population die at different ages. Why is this? Well, because if an animal dies when, when that animal is very, very young, then there is um, non-negligible, well, actually not just non-negligible, uh, a very significant, in fact, uh, probability that this animal will have endured um, significant suffering in the, in the process leading to, to the animal's death. But what happens also is that if the animal is very young when the animal dies, there will be no, no time enough for, for he or for she to have positive experiences. So that means that if... Imagine, for instance, an animal, uh, a small fish, uh, just uh, gets out of, of, of the egg and tries to find food, but never finds any food and just uh, starves to death. And, and the, the starvation process starts uh, just from the very beginning of, of this fish uh, existence. Well, this animal would have endured all this agony, but very little time for having anything that can compensate for that. So we can conclude that then that in this animal's life, Suffering is very, very likely to have vastly prevailed over any positive experiences. Now, the thing is that if you look at age-specific mortality, you can see that in most species of animals, what happens is that the animals that live uh, for, for a long time tend to be a, a tiny minority. Most of them die um, very shortly after coming in, into existence. And this is due to what you mentioned, which is that the prevalent reproductive strategies in the wild are those that mean that animals lay very, very large numbers of eggs. And they, they typically uh, don't make it to maturity because otherwise the populations would um, grow exponentially. And what happens is that on average, in a, if a certain population is stable, then, as you said, only one animal per parent will, will make it to maturity. So this gives us also reason to think that most animals might well uh, have lives that contain more suffering than positive well-being. And of course, this is controversial and we can't claim that this is so for sure. I'm just making this case only based on the evidence that I just, just mentioned. Now, there is an extra step here, which is, okay, if most animals have lives where suffering prevails, it may also well be that in ecosystems, suffering prevails over positive happiness. This doesn't necessarily need to be so because maybe the minority of the animals who survive make it to maturity and live longer lives, uh, have lives that are so happy that they can compensate 
for the suffering of the of the ones who who die uh, when they are very young. But uh, it's not clear whether this is so, among other reasons, because uh, it's not that adult animals live great lives necessarily. They may be affected by yeah by disease and um, by the other factors uh, mentioned mentioned before. But anyway, if we accept this, then that means that we have extra reasons to care about what happens to, to wild animals. If it is the case that many animals have lives that are net negative, and if on top of that, it is also the case that in the wild suffering prevails, then it seems that those reasons would become much, much more important. Yeah, it, it seems like there's there's um you can sort of split wild animal suffering into um two separate categories of concern. One is just that there is at least some suffering, uh, and that um, that suffering is bad, and reducing that suffering would be good. And then the other side would be uh, perhaps that there is that suffering just dominates in the wild, and that um, less wilderness might be good because it would re- reduce overall suffering and more wilderness might be bad. Does that seem fair? I think that what you just described is is correct. If you want to go in a bit more detail, you could present this as as a kind of cumulative argument. So you would say, okay, there is suffering in the wild. We can prevent it. So we have reason to prevent it. So that would be the the first step. Then second, you you could claim, okay, there are animals that have lives that are net negative. So that seems to be particularly bad. So that gives us even stronger reasons. And then you could uh, go a a further step and claim, okay, but maybe the majority of of animals are in this situation. Okay, then that makes the the case even stronger. And then finally you could say, but maybe then in the wild suffering prevails and that will give you even stronger uh, reasons. Now, for instance, suppose you are an egalitarian. The final step would be unnecessary for you. Because the fact that the majority, or, or even if it's not the majority, a sufficiently large group are doing so bad, that already gives you extremely important reasons to help animals. But maybe if you are, for instance, a utilitarian, this final step makes the case even more decisively uh, important. Yeah. Okay. Um, great. Thanks. So I guess a question that uh, I think you've You've covered this a little bit, but I, I know just one objection that um, a lot of people would still have is why should we help wild animals? Um, with farmed animals, the case can be more clear um, because uh, it's it's us that are causing the harm. So it's our responsibility, uh, more obviously our responsibility to stop causing that harm. With natural wild animal suffering, we aren't the ones causing the harm necessarily. Um, so the case can be a little less clear. So what would you say to someone who makes that objection? Yeah, so we have seen before uh, what different ethical frameworks would have to say with regards to uh, wild animal suffering, but of course it could be responded to this that, well, you know, but maybe we don't have those obligations towards uh, non-human animals living in in the wild because uh, it's not really our responsibility, or, or some people would say maybe because they are not human beings, or, or others could say, well, but you know, when you are helping wild animals, you are somehow acting in, in wild ecosystems, and uh, we have different sorts of obligations towards ecosystems, like the ones that um, environmentalist um, thinking usually points out. 
So maybe it's, it's even if um, it seems initially that we should help animals, there are stronger considerations against uh, doing it. So these different arguments can be responded in, in different ways. And I'm going to try to summarize because, of course, we could spend hours just discussing all these reasons. But basically, when it comes to the first sort of considerations, the ones that make a distinction between wild animals and animals that we are using or uh, harming, it's good to consider that uh, from the point of view of the animals, there is no difference whatsoever. So they are equally sentient. So it's not that, you know, a wild boar can suffer less than, than a pig in a factory farm or, or say, I don't know, um, a wild bear can suffer less than, than a chicken in a farm. It doesn't work like that. Then some people claim, well, we have reasons to care about non-human animals that are harmed because it is humans that are harming them. But this is an argument that, uh, that has many complicated ramifications and eventually I think it's, it's, it's very weak. So again, from the point of view of the animals, this makes no difference uh, at all. They may be worried about what happens to them because it harms them, not because of what the source of the harm is. And probably most of them won't be very able to tell the difference in, in one case or another. Then also from our point of view, if you think about this, that would be problematic because it would mean, for instance, that animal advocates would have no reason to fight animal exploitation because after all, if they are vegan, if they are not collaborating with animal exploitation, they are not guilty of harming the animals. So, you know, it's other causes that are harming them when it comes to animal exploitation. And then also, you know, if you are responsible of harming the animals and then you have reasons to, you know, uh, because of that, not harm the animals, then that would mean that you wouldn't be harming the animals in the first place. So this seems kind of paradoxical. So it seems that, you know, the whole point of helping others is to reduce the, uh, the harms that the others are, are suffering. And that's the final consideration, that giving someone moral consideration is about considering the interests of, of those individuals. If, if what you are considering is the source of the harm or whatever, then you are not really giving full moral consideration to that individual because um, what is moving you is, is something else different from, from that individual's interest. It's some other kind of consideration. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think that, well, I think that's a really good point um, because at the, I guess at the end of the day, whether they're a wild animal or a farmed animal, they don't, they don't care what the source is. They probably, they almost certainly don't really know or think about that. Um, they just know that they're suffering or they're uh, experiencing some pleasure. And so... Um, to, as yeah. you said, to put something else on top of that, which is for us to then think about what the source of that is, that's not really putting their interests first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One, one way I like to um, yeah, sort of summarize this and also tie in a little bit to speciesism, which uh, we can get into a little bit later as well if we have some time. But uh, the, the fact that for, for humans, we care about their suffering, whether they're suffering at the hands of another human or whether they're suffering due to some natural cause. So if a, a human is suffering because of some naturally acquired disease or a, a drought or famine or something like that, uh, we, we still care about their suffering and we still think um, it's it's good to do something about that suffering. I think almost no one would disagree with that, I hope. Um, but then when it comes to non-human, suddenly uh, it seems that if it's, it's natural naturally caused suffering, for some people, that means uh, that we then therefore it's a different category. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, sure. I mean, that's totally so. And, and if we think of ourselves, I mean, if we were in that situation, we wouldn't care about whether they are harming us or, or it's a natural factor. So anyone who's, who's you know, listening to this, uh, just, they may co- just consider, what would you prefer to be harmed by someone else who may maybe harm your hand so you can no longer use it? Or to be just walking around one day and be killed by, by a large rock or something that falls onto you. Of course, you would prefer the former, even if it's a human who is causing it, which shows that the fact that something is caused by a human doesn't, doesn't necessarily make it worse. Hmm. Yeah, so let, let's uh, change direction a little bit and um, talk about uh, talk about wild animal suffering through the cause prioritization framework that is commonly used in effective altruism. So. When we're thinking about different cause areas, we often use the um, the three kind of metrics of scale, so how big the problem is, neglectedness, uh, which is h- how many resources or how few resources and people are working on this problem already, and tractability, which is kind of a measure of how solvable is this because if uh, a problem could be big and very neglected, but if we can't do much about it, then maybe it's not worth working on. So. How would you rate wild animal suffering in terms of each of these areas? And I guess to to try and tie it to something else, um, maybe compare to farmed animal suffering uh, with wild animal sufferings. Because I know some people might say, why are we thinking about wild animal suffering when we should be focusing on the billions of land animals who are farmed each year and the the trillions of marine animals who are farmed and hunted each year? So um, maybe to some people it might seem like a distraction to bring up wild animal suffering when we still have those industries uh, going at full speed. So yeah, what what would you what would you say about the scale neglectedness and tractability of wild animal suffering? Yeah, uh, thanks for the question. So well, first of all, I don't think that at this point there should be necessarily a conflict between uh, doing advocacy work, helping wild animals, and uh, helping animals exploited by by humans in in different uh, spheres. Many of the people who are doing advocacy work focusing on animals exploited by humans, they could very easily incorporate work on wild animal suffering to their work, even if it's just in their discourse. They could mention in their materials that also animals in the wild can be helped and so on, even if they don't do actual campaigns uh, for that. And there are also examples of campaigns where you can help animals that are being harmed by humans and animals in the wild at the same time. But anyway, uh, setting this aside, concerning your actual question, I will start by saying that that framework is also often used in ways that can lead to confused conclusions. And here's why. There is a problem with defining really what is a cause or what is a problem. So for instance, if you consider wild animal suffering, is wild animal suffering tractable as such? It really depends on what you are meaning here. If, you, if what you mean is, okay, is it possible to end all wild animal suffering? Then this may not be possible to happen, at least not during the Earth's uh, existence. But the thing is, why should that be the relevant problem to which we apply this framework? Why can't we apply this framework to, for instance, the suffering of animals in this population, right? Because, for instance, suppose that you are considering, just to compare it to some other issue not related to animals, I don't know, say with malaria. Suppose that um, 
ending malaria is the cause or reducing the harms caused by malaria is the cause. So you have a certain number of individuals who are the potential victims of that, and uh, you apply that framework uh, there. Well, seems reasonable. But you could also say, well, no, but the problem really here is human suffering. So maybe malaria is tractable, but malaria is part of human suffering as such. I mean, this would be really odd because this wouldn't really allow you to consider what really is at stake here. And the same happens with wild animal suffering, because it may well be that even if you can never end um, completely wild animal suffering, you can nevertheless um, reduce very, very significant amounts of suffering there. So if the scale is very large, if the scale is huge, then there is a risk that what happens really is that the problem is not the relevant issue to which we should address the problem of tractability. You know what I mean with this, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that makes sense. So, um, yeah, I, I guess with with the difference between human and non-human causes, I think even even for someone like myself who's an advocate of um, non-human causes, uh, we I guess we sort of, for whatever reason, get trapped into lumping it all together when maybe we should be breaking it um, breaking it down more. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, yeah. So, for instance, why should we be considering wild animal suffering as as such? Uh, and see if it's uh, tractable, its scale and everything. We could maybe consider, okay, rabies among wild animal suffering. That is the cause. Is the cause tractable? Yes, it's tractable. Is it neglected? Not really neglected. I mean, there are people working on this. Uh, vaccination programs have been going on for, uh, uh, for several decades already. Now, what if we don't consider rabies among wild animals? Maybe we can consider something else. Animals affected, for instance, by extreme weather events. Okay, here the scale is uh, larger. It's uh, quite neglected. Is it tractable? Yeah, it's uh, relatively tractable. I mean, but um, not in a way that will allow this to ever cease to exist, maybe. But we can nevertheless uh, save a, a, a fair amount of, of, of animals. Then if we consider parasitism, again, we can make here a distinction and, and, and you can consider differently, different cases depending on what the parasite is or what the population affected by the parasite is. And then you will find out that in some cases, yeah, the cause is um, uh, relatively tractable. Uh, in some others, instead, the cause may be very, very, very hard to tackle. So when it comes to tractability, it would do extremely poorly. So. You know, this is why it's, it's, it's complicated, really, to come up with a, a summary for wild animal suffering altogether in terms of, 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 of tractability. But anyway, there is another way of looking at it. We can think that, okay, this is something that has a huge scale and that it's, it seems to be fairly neglected. I mean, there are very few people working on this uh, at this point, only a few Organizations are working on this, and a few years ago, there was only one organization working, working on this. And then when it comes to tractability, we can just say, okay, there are people who have a theory of change regarding this. There are courses of actions that we know that will help us to make a, a difference, uh, that can make a difference at present, and that could make a more significant difference in the future. And maybe that's all we need to consider this uh, um a cause that uh, should be one of our highest priorities. Yeah, that, that all sounds good. 
Um, you, you started to mention some interventions, which uh, I'd, I'd like to talk about some specific examples of different interventions to help animals in the wild. Um, but just before that, I want to just give, um, I guess, a little bit of airtime to any other objections um, that you can think of. So one, one more that I did have in mind uh, that people might have as an objection to working on wild animal suffering is that humans tend to have a pretty bad track record of intervening in nature. Most of the time when humans have intervened in nature, it's caused um, a lot of harm. So people are skeptical of future attempts to intervene. Uh, what would your counter be to that? And then also, do you have any other, um, do you think there are any other strong objections to wild animal suffering that you'd like to address? Yeah, that that's probably the most important objection, really. I mentioned before uh, a few others, maybe we can come back to, to some of them later. But yeah, um, concerning this thing that, yeah, uh, it's very hard to, to assess what the, um, the effects of, of our measures is going to be. There are different things that could be, could be said. So first of all, it's important to consider that those who are currently working on this topic, we are stressing so much that probably the most important thing that we can do right now is to do more research. And actually, that's also one reason why um, our main efforts in the last years have been focused on um, promoting more work on the topic in, in academia, especially among life scientists. So this shows that we are taking seriously this objection. Then second, it could also be mentioned that, in fact, when it comes to you know, assessing unexpected effects, um, there is this tendency to minimize the potential positive effects over the negative effects. So if, if your action can have unforeseen uh, consequences, why are you assuming that they are gonna be negative? Maybe there will be virtuous effects that, that you don't know of. But of course, I mean, again, having said this, of course, it is good to be cautious about this. Another consideration here that I would like to stress is that in fact, this objection seems to be very optimistic about how things are now. So it's pessimistic when it comes to what the effects of our action could be, but it's very optimistic concerning what the situation uh, is at present. So for instance, imagine that, um, say, we implement some measure that we think is going to be very good, but eventually something goes wrong, and uh, certain animals' populations are harmed very significantly. So maybe they are reduced to half in, in their numbers because um, there are many deaths among them. What would this mean for, say, a population where animals may lay, I don't know, 10,000 eggs, right? Which may happen, for instance, with, uh, with some vertebrates, like, for instance, bullfrogs. If we recall what we were talking about before, on average, for these animals, only two of them will make it to maturity, which means that, on average, like 9,998 animals would die. And maybe suffering prevails over pleasure for most of them. So what would happen here is that if the population is, you know, affected so it's reduced to half, is that instead of 9,998 animals dying, there would be 9,999 animals. So not so much of a difference when you consider that the situation is already um, pretty bad. Then something else that it's important also to consider here is that um, humans are intervening in nature all the time. So it's not that now we come up with this 
this proposal of helping wild animals and something that we weren't doing before, which was to act in the wild, we are now proposing to do it. No, it's not like that. I mean, humans are intervening all the time, mostly for anthropocentric reasons. So for instance, we build uh, houses and libraries and hospitals, and we crop the land. There is agriculture, there are forests that are planted and so on. So humans are intervening all the time, and often they also intervene for environmental uh, reasons, because they want to conserve a certain area or they want to transform a certain area according to conservationist ideals, and they do so. So it's not that we don't have knowledge about this. So this is important in two, in two respects. One is that it shows that what we are proposing here is just to add a new aim that our, you know, our action in, in the wild should have. So instead of just acting for anthropocentric reasons, we should also consider the interests of other animals when we act. But it's also, it also shows us that we can make um, reasonable estimates about what the effects of our interventions will be, because otherwise we wouldn't be intervening for the sake of anthropocentric or environmentalist reasons. And then, and sorry because this uh, response, this answer to your question is, is, is being very, very long, but there is a lot that uh, should be said about this. Something else that should be mentioned here is that something that animal advocates uh, working in this field have been promoting is that we could start working with uh, wild animals living in urban ecosystems or in agricultural ecosystems or in other places like industrial or suburban areas. Because it's not that wild animal suffering takes place only in very wild forests, uh, very separated from us. So when we are speaking about wild animals, what we are speaking about is animals that are not really in captivity. So for instance, a fox in a fur farm wouldn't be a wild animal in this, in this sense, but a bird living in, in, around a city or a squirrel living in a, in a city park would be, in all relevant aspects, a wild animal uh, uh, when it comes to the discussion we are having here. So we could start with programs helping these animals, with pilot programs, and then the knowledge we get from there could be applied then more safely to uh, progressively to other areas as well. So there are other things that could be said in, in, in response to this objection, but I think that I don't want to spend the whole the whole hour speaking about this. Yeah, sure. No, it's good. that was good. I, I just wanted to make sure that got some airtime because I think that's the most common objection I hear to this problem, at least uh, at least from from other animal advocates in particular. So going on now to some different interventions. Uh, you mentioned already um, as an example vaccines for rabies. Um, so if we if we take um, if we take I guess vaccines uh, as a whole, what what would that look like? How would we, how would the vaccinations actually get to wild animals? Um, would you need to vaccinate a certain percentage of the population or the population? Um, yeah, how how would that look in in practice? Yeah, so it it really varies from from one disease to other disease, and also it varies when it comes to differing animals. So, for instance, um. Rabies vaccination targeting animals like, say, uh, raccoons or foxes is different from uh, when from programs uh, targeting uh, bats. So, in the in the in the case of the former, you would use um, mostly um, oral baits that you know they are like these kind of baits that are like biscuits that are that contain the the vaccine and they they smell and taste uh, good for animals so they are distributed in certain areas often from from the air with drones or well 
previously it was done uh, with helicopters. And, um, and yeah, I mean, it's not that all the animals in a certain population need to, or in a certain area, need to eat the, 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 the vaccine. There is a certain, um, a certain limit, a certain percentage of the population at which uh, you can grant that the, the disease is, not, is no longer spreading and can eventually be, be eradicated. Though, as I say, this, like with you know, human diseases, this also varies depending on what the disease is. And then, for instance, when, when, it's, uh, when it comes to bats, this method won't really work. So they are doing things like spraying um, you know, uh, areas where, where, like caves where, where they live with, with um, this spray that, that contains the, the vaccine. And yeah, there are other, other methods uh, as well. But, but yeah, as I said, I mean, the case of rabies maybe is the, the, the best one to uh, assess here because it's, it's the one where more significant efforts have been uh, carried out. But there are several others, like, for instance, um, vaccination against swine flu, tuberculosis, brucellosis, anthrax, rinderpest, uh, sylvatic uh, plague. So in most cases, these programs are carried out because we don't want animals to pass the diseases to human beings, but there are certain exceptions. So for instance, in some cases, they are done by conservationist reasons. But yeah, uh, coming back to your question, uh, as I just said, it really depends on, on the disease and, and on the targeted animal, what the method and, and the proportion of the population that will need to get vaccinated. Okay, so it, it seems like for for vaccinating against um, chronic diseases, so diseases that we might expect would be causing a lot of um, suffering to the animals, but wouldn't necessarily lead to their death um, in the in the short term, or wouldn't increase the the number of deaths. Um, would you would you say that that's a safer option in a sense because there's less chance for um, unforeseen side effects like um, some kind of flow on effect through the through the um the local uh environment as a whole um because all we're doing is just we're removing a source of suffering does does that make sense and would you agree with that yeah um, so let me let me just clarify uh, what i would say here so i think that there is your, your main point and then the details of it so with your main point i totally agree and i think that that shouldn't be applied only to um, vaccination um, against certain diseases, but also, uh, for instance, with treatments against uh, certain parasites and, and uh, maybe some other sources of harm. So I totally agree that this, this is a good idea. Now, of course, if someone could tell you, yes, but in doing this, you would be affecting the behavior because maybe the fact that these animals are suffering then that make them behave in different ways. So that means that they intervene in their ecosystem differently. And this may be true of some animals and not of some others. So as a general idea, I think that uh, that's good, but we would have to see how practical it is uh, looking at the specific for each population. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Um, what about things like um, immunocontraceptives, uh, providing them to a population? Say, if a, if a population is of um, wild animals is um, maybe overpopulated, which is leading to um, starvation and things like that, um, could could immunocontraceptives, say either um, airborne or from um, darting, uh, do we has that been done much before, and do we expect that to be beneficial? 
Yes. So um, that's something that has been researched also as well. And at this point, the organization I work with, Animal Ethics, which is one of the very few organizations that are working on the field, is working on um, contraception uh, targeting large herbivores like uh, deer, or maybe we should say deers, because it's not that these animals are like an, an uncountable mass to use the plural deer for them. And um, then another organization working on the field, which is a Wild Animal Initiative, is also doing research on contraception for birds living in urban areas. And um, this is a very interesting form of, of helping animals for two reasons. Now, the first one is that this is an example of something that could allow us to, at the same time, reduce wild animal suffering and reduce the harms that uh, humans cause to these animals. Because it often happens that there is a certain population of animals that grows to a point at which humans uh, don't like uh, the population to be around any longer or would rather have it in smaller numbers. And then killing programs are implemented. I mean, culling, they, they call them, but it's basically killing the animals. And, you know, if we can have a different way of having the population under certain numbers, then we can avoid those killings. And it's better to prevent animals from coming into existence than then to kill them and cause them suffering in, in, their, in, you know, in the process. So this would be a way in which traditional animal advocates who may not have thought of working on wild animal suffering could engage in campaigns for introducing these methods that could also help to uh, improve the situation of animals from the point of view of the well-being. So that's one reason why this is uh, in interesting. The second reason is that if a certain population of animals is suffering from a certain harm and you help that population, there is this risk that then the population will increase the numbers and eventually you will, uh, in the next generation, face the same problem that you were facing beforehand, but in higher numbers. So you have uh, made the situation more problematic now. So if you can have safe methods of contraception, that you can apply there in combination with your measure, then you can eradicate the source of suffering that you were targeting without causing the problem to be more serious in the future. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess um, you could potentially cause, uh, you, could, you could potentially um, overall create a benefit, uh, a net benefit in the short term, but then maybe in the long term that it sort of flips to being a net harm if uh, you increase the population size and you have same problems coming back. Yeah. Anything that leads to larger populations, all things being equal, that typically makes the situation worse, especially if we consider the argument that we saw before. So if animals tend to have very bad lives, on average, we would prefer to have smaller populations. Although this doesn't necessarily need to be the case, if those animals happen to be part of the minority of animals that tend to have good lives. So for instance, there are animals like elephants, uh, it's a very typical example, and maybe some other large um, vertebrates who, unlike what we said before, they tend to reproduce by having maybe just one offspring per time, and their, their lifespan is, is long. They don't typically die when they are very young. They are relatively well prepared to deal with the sources of, of, of harm that there can be in their environment. So yeah, in this case, 
it is not uh, really that bad that these animals are around. Uh, and not only that, it can be actually good, and it's, it may be a good idea to promote that these uh, populations uh, grow. Why is that? Because if these populations are around, the biomass that would otherwise be eaten by other animals is going to be eaten by them. So their existence means that other animals will tend to have smaller populations. And these animals may be animals that on average have very bad lives. So how this works in different ecosystems may be a bit tricky, but other things being equal, we would prefer to have the largest possible uh, populations of animals who tend to have good lives and the smaller possible populations of animals who tend to have uh, bad lives. So this means that the argument I, I mentioned before concerning the, the use of, of uh, contraception uh, would be especially interesting in the case of animals that tend to have very bad lives. So that means that maybe uh, new measures, like, I don't know, like CRISPR methods to reduce populations of, say, certain invertebrates, that can be a very positive uh, thing if the lives of these animals uh, tend to be bad. Yeah, I, I think the point about biomass or just, I guess, resources in general available to wild animals is is an important one because uh, that's that's one of the main things that seems to drive what the stable population is. So, you know, um, I know, I know in, in Australia where I am, uh, there's a lot of push to um, kill certain uh, to kill a number of um, animals of different species, whether they're introduced animals. Um, or they're say interfering with, um, also so the um, they might claim they're interfering with uh, animal farmers, but um, in some ways it seems like that might be a short-term solution because it's not really changing the underlying uh, resources that are available. So you might expect to see, um, if not that animal population bouncing back to its original numbers, it's, then maybe some other animal population will um, will consume those resources. Uh, does that does that make sense? Um, yeah. So you would prefer that the animals that are consuming those resources are those who, who will tend to have better lives. Yes. Although it may happen also that even when it comes to animals who tend to have good lives, you may uh, want to sometimes stress the use of, of contraception as well. So for instance, I mentioned before the case of um, large herbivores like deer or, or deers, and you could also consider animals like kangaroos. So I think that kangaroos, on average, when you consider all the animals that are around, potentially they may be among amongst the ones that tend to have better lives, but still they can be in a situation where, where they starve to death because yeah, the resources are not enough and this has actually happened. So contraception with them can also be a very good thing. Sure. So to change subject a little bit, um, some people have suggested that the solution to farmed animal suffering uh, will come more from technology rather than people being convinced by the moral imperative. Um, so, for example, things like uh, cellular agriculture might solve the problem more than people making the moral case in the same way that some other uh, harms in the past, like whaling, that didn't really end so much because of the moral case. That seems to have ended more because uh, we started using uh, kerosene instead of instead of whale oil. So, do you think that with wild animal suffering, there will be an element of that where maybe it's hard to make the moral case, but some technology might um, might do the job more than making the moral case? Yeah. So. Um... 
I think that we really need to make the moral case. Um, but um, before I say that, I think that there are certain ways of helping wild animals that will benefit significantly uh, from the fact that they are also helpful for human beings. And the main one uh, has to do with vaccination. Uh, so as I mentioned before, most of these wild animal vaccination programs uh, have been carried out because, yeah, people don't want to be harmed by the same conditions that animals have and because maybe these animals can pass the diseases they have enough to humans to maybe other animals that humans live with. The present situation may well be an example of this, right? And maybe we could consider at some point vaccinating wild animals against uh, coronaviruses, maybe against SARS-CoV-2, but maybe against other potentially harmful uh, coronavirus. I mean, potentially harmful for, for humans because they are already harmful for, for other animals. And this may eventually help uh, other animals like the One Health paradigm uh, promotes. This view that human health is also related to animal health and, and so on. And, and there may be other, other cases where this may happen as well. So maybe by, yeah, by reducing certain populations of animals, we will be doing them a favor because their lives tend to be bad. And then that can help uh, human beings in other ways. We could, for instance, consider in the case of urban animals, maybe we can examine which animals tend to have better lives in urban environments and promote the presence of those animals instead of the presence of others that tend to have bad lives and see which of the ones that tend to have good lives are relatively better also or not harmful for, for humans. You know, try to find balances there. So yeah, something of the kind can happen. But anyway, I nevertheless think that making the moral case is, is absolutely necessary. And I think that there is something interesting, which is that, yeah, there is this argument that says that, well, you know, human slavery, I mean, human slavery has an end, but uh, uh, it didn't end as something that was uh, legally approved and so on and, and done in massive and open ways because of the moral case, but because of economic reasons. And there are other examples that are sometimes presented to show that progress really can't be made on the basis of the moral case. And I often find myself in disagreement with these views because uh, it seems that in most of those cases, the moral case did have something to do with it. It would be a different question to argue to what extent it did, but it had definitely some role to play there. But in addition to this, there is this other consideration that worries me more, which is that in the future, there could be other ways of harming animals that are um, more significant than the ones existing now, and that may cause significantly more suffering than the one that is taking place right now. So for instance, uh, when factory farms appeared um, last century, many people may have thought that, well, yeah, this is like the worst thing that is happening to animals. So yeah, this is horrible. And they couldn't imagine maybe when the first factory farms uh, were already established that this could actually well happen. And that now, for instance, farms of aquatic uh, animals, um, including uh, different species of, of fish or fishes, but actually also uh, different species of invertebrates like uh, crustaceans and so on, may end up uh, killing a much more significant uh, number of animals than 
factory farms of vertebrates. And the same happens now with, uh, um, with factory farms of, of insects. So by making the moral case, you are also uh, setting the ground to prevent that these future forms of, of suffering take place. And in the case of wild animal suffering, we may consider more speculative scenarios, but um, they may be uh, speculative, but not uh, wildly speculative, where wild animal suffering is expanded. So an example of this would be the claims made by many supporters of, for instance, uh, the colonization of Mars, saying that, yeah, and we should terraform Mars and bring uh, wild animals there and so on. And this sounds a bit like science fiction, but you never know what may happen in the future. And actually, as an example of this, uh, this is an example that I like to mention because this is something actual that, ha that something that actually happened with this regard is that the Israeli um, moon lander that recently crashed, um, among their plans, there was this uh, plan of bringing tardigrades, which are a certain specific kind of, of invertebrates that are very resistant to the moon and see how long they could resist there. So all these things uh, seem to me extremely worrying. And there are also other possibilities that are maybe more speculative, like for instance, when people consider things like, I don't know, new artificial forms of life or, or even artificial forms of sentience and so on. Well, these are all issues that are speculative, but very serious anyway. And I think that in order to prevent these future forms of suffering, it is important to make the, the moral case because every time that there is the possibility that a new technology is applied that is extremely harmful for a large number of individuals and is beneficial for a small number of individuals, if this latter small number of individuals does not give any moral consideration to the large number of individuals that are affected, then something very terrible can happen. And, and we should try to prevent that. And I don't think that the advantages of uh, helping wild animals, the advantages for humans that that can have, or the advantages for humans of not exploiting uh, animals in, in factory farms will help to prevent this lack of moral consideration for other sentient beings. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you mentioned uh, terraforming. Actually, that's that's an area of interest, uh, particular interest to me. I am just wrapping up now my PhD in space science, and uh, terraforming is something I talked about. Uh, and in particular, I, I I've I've been sort of cautioning a little bit um, with with reference to wild animal suffering. It's it really seems like within the space of within the area of space science. I'm sort of alone, it, it feels like. Um, I, I think most of my colleagues around the world would would um, would think that we should terraform Mars uh, and not really give much consideration to any kind of long-term downsides. Uh, one, one example is that uh, people have talked about using certain insects actually as part of the part of the early terraforming process. So for example, once um, Mars has uh, um, once once Mars uh, terraforming has is underway, talking about it just introducing a certain type of insect to speed up that process and just um, have them spread across the planet, which I think would be terrible. But not 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 just that. I mean, even if they're not used in terraforming, if we do terraform Mars, it's sort of inevitable that wild animals will be on Mars, whether it's by accident or on purpose. And you know, I think that if if it's the case that the the wild has more suffering than 
pleasure, I think that would be just terrible. And I, yeah, so I, I try and caution against that, but I, I think I'm uh, unfortunately f- fairly unique within space science. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, that's a huge problem, and, and yeah, as, as I mentioned before, the case of the Israeli and um, you know crashed uh, moon lander in 2019, and they're bringing tardigrades there. I mean, that's a that's a clear example of that, and 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 and, and the fact is that it's very likely that all tardigrades have have been killed when when this happened. Although you you can never know because these animals are really really resistant, but yeah, the case of Mars, that seems to be uh, a pretty bad uh, and, and more likely scenario. And also, it's not just this, it's that you can also find, among people who are interested in, in long-termism, in the idea that uh, we should give uh, special attention to what happens in the in the future, and maybe that the importance of the future dominates because it's going to be so long and what's going to happen in the future is more important or, or in the long-term future is more important than what happens in the in the short-term future. There are some people, well, like myself, that would want to combine this uh, long-term misapproach with a reduction of the harms that sentient beings may, may suffer in the future. But then other people are promoting things like, for instance, yeah, uh, we could spread life from Earth to other to other planets all around the galaxy and things like that. And that really is science fiction at, at this point. But the ideal that is guiding this, this will uh, to eventually uh, achieve this worries me because it's conveying that very little concern is given to wild animal suffering, which is why we should make an extra effort to make the moral case for, for you know, <laughs> give them moral consideration. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we're getting, we're getting um, perhaps a little bit off topic. I think it's still really good. And uh, I'll, I'll bring us back to, um, I want to talk about strategies for wild animal suffering advocacy. Uh, but, but just on that last point that you made, uh, I, I feel like I am kind of in the middle of whether, um, I'm, I'm very unsure whether, sort of the Nick Bostrom vision of the future of spreading spreading life uh, throughout the galaxy and, and beyond in the long run. Whether I'm kind of um, undecided whether that would be good. I think um, it, it could be good and I think it also could be um, bad. I, I feel like sometimes that in, in within the space of long-termism, there is a bit of a bias to thinking that the future is going to be good when... Really, I guess if if we did spread life throughout the galaxy, that that could be also be quite bad. Um, do you do you have any quick comments on that or thoughts before we go back to advocacy? I, I certainly have comments on that, but not not quick and short. <laughs> we could <laughs> well, maybe we'll, for we'll a... <laughs> save it for another. We'll save it for the next uh, next time I get you back in the podcast, maybe. Yeah, but maybe just one thing, just one short thing. That is. Um, Maybe we can, you know, set aside the issue of whether the expansion of sentience would be good or bad. I mean, I'm probably less optimistic than you, and I, and, and for sure, I way less optimistic than people like Nick Bostrom and and others who have written on the on on this. But uh, setting that aside, uh, I think that we could um, have different views towards that. And all agree that spreading wild animal suffering would be bad, which means that spreading um, wild animals should be a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so yeah, let's go back to um, promoting wild animal suffering, uh, concern for wild animal suffering, or just advocacy in general. Um, what what kind of strategies do you think uh, have been have worked so far? I, I I do have to say, in the last few years, and this might just be, uh, it's definitely anecdotal, but it might just be about me <laughs> developing more of a pro wild animal suffering concern bubble. But I, I do feel like in the last few years, there's been a shift from people thinking that we should not uh, should try not to intervene in wild animals, the lives of wild animals at all, to thinking now that at least if we can do something like um, protect them from some chronic disease and reduce suffering that way, then we should. So it, it does seem like there's been a little bit of a shift. Uh, maybe you can comment on whether you think that's the case or not. But what, what can we do to, to continue that shift? What different strategies can we look at? Yeah, so um, there's definitely been a... Uh, a lot of progress in the last in the last years. So um, basically, when when a few people started to write about this, like uh, in the end of the first decade of the of the century, maybe like yeah, thirteen, twelve years ago, something like that, the stress was in the moral case for reducing wild animal suffering. And then when animal ethics started to work on this, we were trying to promote concern about this topic mainly among animal advocates and also effective altruists and, and other uh, key groups. And then at some point, we saw that um, yeah, uh, more and more people were increasingly um, being aware of the importance of the topic and, and joining on board. We were more successful than, than we thought initially that we were going to be. So at some point around maybe 2017, we decided, okay, so now given that there are more people who are starting to do activism on their own, maybe we can shift and assess the new aim, the new goal, which would be really what can make a more significant difference here, which is to try to get more scientists on board with this. So if concern for wild animals were expressed in academics working on the field, in them doing work to assess to what extent different animals suffer in different situations and what may be the ways of helping them, we would be able to see a, a significant boost uh, for the cause for several reasons. First, because research in academia can be done way better than outside academia. They have more resources, they are, you know, they are more prepared and everything. In addition, they can influence new generations of, of, of researchers on this field. And not only that, they are the people uh, who policymakers listen to. So if policymakers have to make any decision that is going to affect wild animals, it's, it's very unlikely that they are going to take very seriously what uh, animal advocates tell them. They are going to pay more attention to what scientists are going to tell them. So we started to study this. Animal ethics did uh, several studies assessing the attitudes of, of life science students and scholars about this. And we found out that while they may not maybe willing to support certain very radical forms of interventions, they were happy to support many measures. So uh, we identified especially wild animal vaccination programs, helping animals in urban uh, environments and helping animals affected by extreme weather events as three key forms of helping wild animals that they are especially likely to approve. This can be, can be seen in, in, at Animal Ethics website. We have their, uh, their reports with, with all these studies. 
And then uh, there are other measures, like for instance, contraceptions that, that can, can be helpful uh, here. So for the last years, uh, Animal Ethics has been combining, uh, doing outreach to spread concern about this topic, among others as well, because we also work in general to spread concern for all sentient beings. Then after, after that, this new organization, Wild Animal Initiative, which is the result of the incorporation of two other organizations that previously exist, started to do work uh, mainly focused on promoting research in academia. And they have done a, a great work in terms of getting more, more people there involved. So at this point, the strategy is, is like um, divided into different key groups that we would need to reach. So we are doing work to get more uh, scholars, scientists involved. We are continuing to do work targeting animal advocates because they are like the more, the, like the more, like the clearer example of the people who should be concerned about this. And they are also a powerful voice as well. So getting them in, on board could mean that the cause of such could have much more influence. And then there are other challenges that we are not really addressing yet, which would include things like reaching out to policymakers. This could not just include things like lobby work. It could also include uh, reaching out to people who are maybe not politicians or people who are uh, in charge of deciding which policies are followed uh, or are implemented at a large scale, but also at, at a smaller scale. For instance, I don't know, uh, reaching people like directors of national parks or people deciding the, the policy concerning animals in urban areas or certain forests or agricultural areas. So yeah, this is something that we want to do in the future, but we are not uh, doing right now. So I would say that at this specific point, most of our efforts are into first into promoting these topics of research that we have identified as especially promising so scientists work on them. And then to educate more uh, yeah, uh, people who may be sympathetic or potentially sympathetic to wild animal suffering, but really don't know that much about it. Or even if they know about it a bit, they don't know how to do activism in this. So concerning the latter, Animal Ethics has an online course where we explain all the relevant topics and we have also published uh, an ebook called uh, Introduction to Wild Animal Suffering, A Guide to the Issues. And we plan to do uh, workshops and, and other things to, to try to educate more people on how to do wild animal advocacy work. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, you've sort of answered my next question a little bit as well, which is going to be about uh, what what can someone do if, say, if someone is just completely concerned, uh, sorry, completely sold and is concerned about wild animal suffering, what sorts of things would you recommend they do? So that might be a good starting point, and we'll we'll have some links to that material in the show notes. But what what other kinds of things do you think someone might consider looking at if they're if they've decided they want to dedicate at least some of their life to helping to reduce wild animal suffering or helping to promote the cause? Yes. So that really depends on on the on what the situation is. So for instance. Um, suppose that they are, they are life science students, then uh, I would say, yeah, become a, a, a scientist, maybe an academic or a professional scientist and, and try to work on the issues that are relevant uh, here. We need scientists doing interdisciplinary work uh, in the intersection of animal welfare science and 
other related fields like the science of ecology and zoology, biology, etc. What if you are not uh, a life science student? What if you work in academia but in other fields, for instance, in social science or in law or politics, uh, philosophy? Well, you could also do work trying to spread concern about this, trying to examine how legislation, uh, how policies could be modified in ways that are more favorable to, to animals. If you work in social science, you could work on how to assess the best ways to increase concern about this topic. And uh, what if, for instance, you are considering getting a position in places like, yeah, like uh, government administration? Well, you could do just the same kind of work. Now, what if you are not in any of these situations? Well, if you are, for instance, an animal advocate and if you, you, for instance, work in an animal organization or just do some volunteer work, you could try to incorporate uh, wild animal suffering into, into your work. So if, if you would like to uh, learn more about what sort of campaigns or work you could do, you can get in touch with organizations like, yeah, like Animal Ethics or, or others working in the field, uh, and we would happily give you advice on that. Or if you don't want to do any campaigns, you could just incorporate this as part of your discourse. So when you are challenging speciesism, you may well focus on, on animals harmed by humans, but you may also mention that sometimes there are also positive things that we could do for other animals that are not harmed by, by, by us and put a couple of samples there. And uh, finally, what if you are not in any of these situations? You are just a regular person who maybe has some... Uh, spare time and, and want to help with this. Well, I mean, of course, in addition to donating to the people who are, who are doing work on this, which is also always helpful, you could get in touch with, with uh, the organizations because maybe they could use your help. There are many ways in which, um, in which the help of, of um, any people can be helpful. So some people have certain skills, like, I don't know, graphic design or video design or what have you that can be helpful there. Other people can help doing things like editing text. And uh, then finally, there are many ways in which you can help, like for instance, uh, spreading concern in social media and, and so on, with which you can complement your help to other organizations. And if you are not in an organization and you would prefer to work alone, well, again, if for instance, you are someone like, like you, Michael, you could uh, do podcasts where you speak about this, which by the way, you are doing at this very point. But other people who may be listening to this may do something of the kind as well. So I think that there is plenty of, of work that can be done and people in many different situations can, can help in different ways. Yeah, great. I think that's a really good summary. Thank you. So I just want to finish up with um, talking about where I, I guess I see a little bit of a potential conflict or a tension between say, concern for white animal suffering and maybe the conservation movement um, in general. So one example I have in mind is uh, there are there, there's a lot of talk about rewilding recently um, where we might actually um, get an area that has been, say, um, its land use has been converted from, say, a forest to maybe some cropping area, and we're talking about turning that back into uh, a forest and introducing uh, the animals, the wild animals used to live there back into that area. Do you, so I, I guess uh, that, um, that, that could be a bad thing from in one sense, because uh, if, if it's, if, as we said before, if it's the case that there is more suffering 
than well-being if in the animals who live there, that that could potentially be bad. So how do you think about that sort of conflict between um, concern for, say, it's a mix of concern for climate change and for the environment in general, but maybe there's uh, some conflict with wild animal suffering? Yeah, so um, I'll first um, try to assess like the general conflict in, in values and the limits of, of such conflicts. And, uh, and then I will address uh, the specific case you mentioned of yeah, rewilding and similar measures. So there is definitely a conflict there in that we are uh, promoting concern for sentient animals as individuals because they can suffer, they can feel, I mean, what happens to them matters to them. And um, environmentalists or conservationists uh, are defending something else. This, uh, this environmentalist or conservationist aim is to promote certain ideals such as the conservation of um, certain ecosystems without many modifications, the conservation of biodiversity, and, and so on. So this also reflects in the kind of work that is promoted also and in the kind of research that is promoted. So conservation biology is the kind of interdisciplinary work that has been done in order to learn more about how ecosystems are and then with this knowledge, we can know how to intervene in the wild in order to make uh, things be more like we want if we share that conservationist ideal. And when it comes to um, consideration for, for, the, uh, for animals as individuals, I mentioned before that we need their interdisciplinary work as well, combining uh, approaches from animal welfare science, the science of ecology, and so on. And there's been a term used for this which is welfare biology in this case. It's, it's kind of analogous to conservation biology. It's interesting that many of, of, of the things that are done, in, for instance, in conservation biology could also be helpful for the development of welfare biology because this is just general information about how ecosystems work that you can use for a certain purpose or for another purpose. Now, to what extent there is a, an actual conflict there? Well, it really depends on whether conservationist ideals are meaning that we are introducing policies that are reducing or increasing wild animal suffering. So if we consider the example that I mentioned before, uh, that of the conservation of, say, elephants, the conservation of elephants, as we saw, is, is positive because elephants tend to have uh, good lives and also because they are preventing this other population of animals who tend to have very bad lives from, from being there. There can be, nevertheless, other cases where, for instance, uh, we may want to promote a certain measure that increases the number of um, animals who tend to have very bad lives in a certain area. One example of this takes place when areas with low productivity, you want to regreen, or you want to just not, not regreen them, but actually to green them. These are areas that have been uh, maybe desert for a long time, and part of the desert you are converting it in an area which has more uh, biological productivity. Now, this is something that sounds like something that is environmentalist or conservationist, but is in fact opposite to what conservationism would defend, because you are not conserving the desert ecosystem. You are destroying that ecosystem to create a, a, new, a new ecosystem which has more life. And the same happens in the case of, or may happen maybe, according to some models, in the case of climate change. Uh, because of the way in which land masses are distributed on Earth, it may well be that 
climate change may eventually mean that there is more life on Earth because areas that are very cold now today will become greener and so on. So this shows that promoting that there is more life around doesn't necessarily have to be aligned with what conservationism defends. What happens in the case of rewilding? Generally speaking, it seems that that would be a bad idea because generally speaking, we would consider it to be something that would generate more wild animal suffering. But again, we can also consider this in a more pragmatic light. So suppose that there is a certain amount of land where, where the previously uh, existing ecosystem is going to be recreated. Well, we should compare what the ecosystem right now is with what the previously existing ecosystem was, because maybe in the ecosystem that was there present before humans changed it, the type of animals that live there and the numbers and so on are such that there used to be less suffering there. In addition to this, if a certain area is going to be rewilded anyway, so for instance, it's, uh, it's an area where crops have been uh, um, uh, yeah, planted before, and now we're going to plant uh, a certain forest. Maybe something that can be done, and this is something that uh, Wild Animal Initiative has, has been uh, writing about, what we could be doing is to examine in what kind of forests we can estimate there to be more suffering. So we could plant yeah, certain trees or some other trees. And maybe if we plant a, a certain type of, of trees, uh, there would be these certain types of, of birds there that tend to have uh, worse lives than if we plant this other. So we can consider this in, in making our, our decisions. So just to conclude um, with regards to all this, I think that when it comes to examining these issues, it's very important to point at the difference that there are between uh, the moral consideration of animals as individuals and environmentalist ideals. But once this is done, I think it's also useful to have um, a more practical approach and think, okay, if wild animal suffering is going to be caused anyway, let's try to find the ways in which uh, we can reduce it as much as, as we can. And also try to find ways in which we can collaborate towards that goal. Great. Okay. Sounds good. Um, and last question I have is, uh, so I know some people have, have made the case that maybe as more people become vegan, uh, let's say we're, we're at something like 1% of people now are vegan. And let's say for whatever reason, technology, people being convinced by the moral case, we go up to uh, 10, 20%. Do you, do you think, um, so that the argument goes that this could actually um, be, uh, be bad overall because so you need more land essentially to uh, produce calories from animal products and you need to produce calories from uh, plant products. So what happens is we may get uh, more land being converted back into um, wilderness, uh, whether through directly rewilding or just the fact that it's not being used for crops or for grazing anymore. So it's that's a potential pathway for more people being vegan to lead to more wild animal suffering. Uh, do you? Um, and I guess you've you've sort of addressed that a little bit with your last your last answer. But uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So practically speaking, I would suggest something like what I just mentioned that we can consider that okay, if a certain ecosystem is going to be there, that is different 
from, I don't know, uh, a piece of land dedicated to growing oats or what have you. We want it there to be uh, somewhere where there is less suffering. And by the way, we should remember something that I mentioned before, that it's not that wild animal suffering just exists in so-called wild areas. The way we are using the term here means that it also exists in urban areas, industrial areas, and of course, also in, in agricultural areas. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess the, the main the main point is that uh, we might expect more bi- um, biomass in wild animals in mm-hmm. an area that's not being used for cropping. But but you're right. Yeah. Yes, it would be in, it would be everywhere. Yeah, yeah, you are right in that. So having said this, what I would say is that yeah, well, you recall that I placed a significant um, I, I placed a lot of importance on spreading the moral case. Uh, so I think that in order to make the future as good as possible, we need to spread moral consideration for all forms of sentience, even those that don't exist now and will exist in the future. And that at this particular point means spreading concern for, for non-human animals. So I think that that's very hard to achieve if you are not supporting that we humans don't harm those animals. Due to which, if you are advocating that we should give moral consideration to all sentient beings, it's very hard not to advocate then that we should stop harming animals. Not just because harming animals is so terrible, the huge amounts of suffering that we cause to animals, their deaths in so significant numbers are important in themselves. But in addition, by spreading veganism, we are also spreading this idea that we should respect anyone who can suffer. And in that way, we are preventing the future from, from containing more, more suffering. So I think that even if the, uh, this effect that you mentioned actually takes place and it drives us to a bad scenario in the short or on the medium term, I think that in the long term, it's better to continue to, uh, to insist in the importance of spreading veganism. And I, for one, would also like to stress that I think that it's more important to spread anti-speciesism than veganism as such, because I I think that on the long term, it's more important to change attitudes rather than behaviors. But I also think that changing behaviors may be a key part of changing attitudes. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much uh, for for joining me today. So we'll um, we'll have some links to some of the resources you mentioned uh, in the show notes. But is there anything else? Um, any any uh, anything in particular you think people should go and look at, or if people want to know more about your work or animal ethics, where should they go? Yeah. So in the case of my work, they can yeah they can find it very easily. I mean, I have a a page in academia.edu and in ResearchGate, where you can yeah, find my papers and in Google Scholar as well. But um, maybe it's more interesting to look at the materials that Animal Ethics has rather than my own work. So yeah, there are lots of things at Animal Ethics website that can be useful for this. There is a, a whole website section addressing this, but I would recommend if you visit our website, Click on the part that says video, because there you could see the online video course about this topic that you may find, yeah, an an accessible and useful, I hope, resource to learning more about this. Great. Awesome. We'll, we'll We'll have links for all that as well. 
So yeah, th thank you again so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I think it's we had a really good discussion. Uh, hopefully this um, was interesting to our viewers, to our listeners. And uh, we'll leave it there. So thank you again, Oscar. Thank you very much again for having me. That was my interview with Oscar Orta. Thank you for listening. As I mentioned, we'll have links to all of the resources mentioned in the show notes. Again, please consider leaving a review for the podcast and sharing it with your friends. Thanks again. And until next time, this was the Morality is Hard podcast.